Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. Today I'm joined by Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, who's a regular companion on this podcast. It has been an interesting week, actually, not just because of the transition of power in the United States, but also uh, quite an interesting week in the markets. I found plenty to write about in the uh, commentary I'm now doing for the Moneymakers website. Uh, what's been happening in the market, uh, Simon? I know it's been a busy week for you too, which we might come back to in a moment later on. But uh, what's been happening in the market this week? Yeah, it's as you say, it's been a really interesting week for the market. Um, I mean, the, the UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share will probably end down on the week, uh, probably about half a percent or so. Investment companies have done a little bit better than that. They will finish the week in positive territory, up probably about one, one and a half percent. But you can see the market really grappling with where we are at the moment. I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think we can all see that light. The question really is, how long is the tunnel? How long will the restrictions surrounding coronavirus last? And what's the impact on earnings of the various companies that make up the marketplace? But on the other side, of course, we've got the prospect of additional stimulus, not least from the the new Biden administration. So the market's really trying to weigh up how this will play out. Indeed it is. And uh, as you say, the sort of mood music on the pandemic uh, and lockdowns is not as good as it was. I think it's certainly deteriorated in the last couple of weeks. People now talking rather gloomily about lockdown continuing longer than people thought. But on the other hand, as you say, market's job is to look forward and look past the short term into the distant future. And a lot will depend, I think, on what happens and how the US uh, administration's package is received and so on. But let's go on and talk about investment trusts. There are always lots of things happening in the investment trust world as well. That's one of the reasons why we like them so much. We can talk about them every week. There's always something happening. There's always something happening involving uh, some trusts in particular. But this week, we're not going to talk about the trusts that won't die. There's no news from them this week. But we are going to talk about uh, some corporate activity. Let's start off with an interesting announcement from the Jupiter Green Investment Trust. So this week, the Jupiter Green Investment Trust announced that Charlie Thomas, and that's been the fund's investment manager uh, since 2006, is to leave Jupiter Asset Management. He's actually taking on a role at Edentree as their CIO. He was previously the head of strategy, environment and sustainability at Jupiter. uh, And a chap called John Wallace has been appointed uh, to replace him. He will be the lead manager of the Jupiter Green Investment Trust. You know, John's been there for a number of years. I think he joined Jupiter in 2009. He's worked with Charlie since 2014. So there is quite a degree of uh, continuity there. Uh, it's an interesting mandate because uh, I think, as we've talked about before, the Jupiter stable has contracted uh, in recent years. And this is one of its few remaining investment trusts. It's not particularly large, probably about 54 million of assets. But it's in a, a section of the marketplace that is in demand at the moment, and that's reflected in its premium rating of, of 7%. And I suspect the good people at Jupiter will be keen to grow this one uh, and put it in the shop window and uh, try and grow its assets and make it a little bit more attractive to a wider base of investors. Yes, it has been interesting that it hasn't managed to grow to a bigger size than it is at the moment, despite being uh, one of the early pioneers, certainly in uh, labelling itself as a green investment trust. And uh, interesting, I see that Charlie Thomas is uh, going off. He's going to be um, taking a, a sort of CIO job rather than actually managing funds. I think I read that right. Interesting development. There's also some news from another Jupiter Investment Trust that I happen to know a little bit about. That is uh, Jupiter UK Growth, where I am a non-executive director. 
And you can tell me what the announcement is this week, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I can indeed. Well, they provided an update on the liquidation and rollover of the investment trust. And, and obviously, we knew that this uh, process was underway. There will be a tax-efficient rollover option into a Brown Advisory Global Leaders Fund. But the actual cash exit option is the default option. So for those shareholders that don't actually tick the box, they will receive cash. They are waiting to receive tax clearance from uh, HMRC. And as soon as that's received, a circular will be sent out to shareholders, which in turn will lead to a general meeting. uh, And then things will progress quite quickly thereafter. So it just goes to show that these things do take uh, a passage of time. uh, And you might be able to provide some insight into this. But uh, because of the various lockdown measures at the moment, I think we're conscious that there are some aspects of corporate activity that are taking a little bit longer. uh, But uh, we are eventually getting there. Yes, I mean, the wheels are grinding, but they are grinding quite slowly. And that's uh, obviously something which is a little bit outside our control. Unfortunately, as the board, we have to take it at the pace that our, you know, all the advisors and so on can work as well. Uh, but we are moving towards a, a resolution here. And uh, as I say, the point you've emphasised is that actually if shareholders want to uh, roll over into the Brown Advisory Global Leaders Fund, the one that uh, we've identified as uh, the rollover option, they will have to make a positive decision to do so. It's unlike in some issues where the default option is to go into the rollover vehicle. Here we're actually, for various reasons which are quite technical, I'm not going to go into here, but they are basically you'll have to make a positive declaration if you want to get the rollover, which means, uh, I'm afraid, uh, you know, looking out for the circular and, and getting in touch with your broker and so on, or platform accordingly. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about uh, Keystone Investment Trust, where we know there's been a recent, uh, or at least the management is about to change and it's going to the today's hot hands at Bailey Gifford. What, uh, what have, uh, what's been the update there? Well, this week we saw a shareholder circular uh, published, and that's in advance of a, a general meeting on the 10th of February. Uh, and just to remind people, this was, as you say, an, an investment management change and a change of investment approach that was announced uh, in early December. Bailey Gifford uh, will take on this mandate and a positive change investment strategy will be adopted, assuming that shareholders' approval is forthcoming. The idea is that, the, as I mentioned, the general meeting will be on the 10th of February and then effectively Bailey Gifford will, will take effect from, from the 11th of February. And the name will be changed to the Keystone Positive Change Investment Trust. So um, that's all in progress. As I said, shareholder approval is required before that change can be effective, though. Just a quick check on what's been happening to the the share price and the discount in this uh, interim period, I suppose we can call it. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been part of the Invesco stable for a period of time and it's suffered from slightly dull, if not disappointing, performance record. And in the last year, it traded out on a 14% discount since the announcement in early December of the forthcoming or potential change of investment manager. It has been re-rated so it's probably trading uh, on a 1% or 2% discount at the moment. So a very, very tight range, uh, really re-rated. And that's in advance of the uh, of Bailey Gifford, as you say, getting their hands on the mandate. Right. So it's a good example of how the market uh, tends to anticipate uh, future events. That would seem to suggest that uh, given the performance that Bailey Gifford has had, that investment trust might go to a premium at some point, do you think, after the change? If all the other Bailey Gifford funds are going like that, I suppose it is a slightly different mandate from the other ones. But uh, do you think that's a possibility? Obviously, the premium discount is set by the market, not by us. But uh, what do you think might happen there? Well, I mean, if you look at, as you, as you point out, you look at the reality of the situation, uh, a number of Bailey Gifford funds are, in fact, trading on uh, premium ratings at the moment. And that's been the case now uh, for an, a number of months. 
that said, uh, many of them do have, if not all of them, have the, the powers to issue new shares. And I think it's, it's something that we talked about before, the importance of managing your premium as much as managing your, your discount. Um, I think no one wants to see premiums get overextended, particularly when the underlying is effectively a liquid portfolio of publicly listed companies. So could this be re-rated? Could we see Keystone issuing some shares? It's It's entirely possible, though I think it's worth noting that there will be some people clearly that have held this particular investment trust at the moment. It's in the UK all companies subsector, uh, so it's effectively a portfolio of UK uh, publicly listed equities. Under Bailey Gifford's watch, assuming shareholder approval is forthcoming, it's going to be global equities, of which a proportional will be in private companies, so a different mandate. Now that may result in, in some shareholders wishing to, to move on, the mandate might not suit them, so there may be a little bit of a transition in the shareholder base required. Indeed, that would seem to be likely, as you say, because not everybody will want to have uh, they may already have a lot of Bailey Gifford Investment Trust, for example, and they may not want more. OK, so let's move on and talk about another one, which I think is an interesting one we mentioned before. I, uh, I'm i quite interested in this one. I'm quite interested in this whole microcap area. And this is River and Mercantile UK Microcap, RMMC. This is a, a, an interesting development, I think, speaks well to the uh, integrity of the board here. That's right, yeah. So they announced this week that the board uh, intends to undertake a compulsory redemptions of shares under the, the fund's redemption mechanism. Uh, now, this is used periodically to return capital to shareholders at around uh, NAV. And essentially, the idea here, and this was built into this particular investment trust at its launch, is, as you say, investing UK microcap companies. So these are uh, publicly listed companies in the UK below 100, 150 million market cap or so. So these are, by definition, the less liquid, smaller companies in the UK marketplace. Now, what uh, River Mercantile made very clear at the onset of this fund is that they, they didn't want to run too much money uh, in this particular strategy. Um, they felt that a listed closed only fund was the right form, the right structure to access this area of the marketplace. But they were quite wary of it, you know, possibly proving a success, and it certainly has performed well since its launch, and therefore growing in size to the point where uh, the actual investment manager would struggle to, to uh, make meaningful investment in a relatively concentrated portfolio. I think um, my recollection is about 40 to 50 holdings in this particular fund. So there was this redemption mechanism built in from the outset that if the investment trust uh, were to get over 100 million, about 100, 110 million in terms of assets, it would look to return surplus capital to shareholders. So this is quite unusual, but we, I think we can understand the reasons why they went for this. Uh, it, since in the life of the, the company, it's actually made three compulsory redemptions so far, the latest being August 2018. Um, and so this is the, the fourth, effectively. And they look to return 15 million pounds to shareholders. Uh, I think our estimate is that they've got about 120 million of assets at the present, so that, that would bring it down to, to nearer to 100 million, and that's really what they're trying to do. Okay, so that is interesting, and it's uh, as obviously the point here being that uh, if you're the management company and the assets of the company continues to grow, then obviously your fees grow up in proportion uh, unless you change or the board changes the fees. So there is a sort of built-in incentive for fund management groups to, they'd like to see their trust grow because they make a better income out of it as, as they get bigger, uh, unless they get scaled back on the fee front. But So this is a kind of disciplined approach, uh, which actually caps how much uh, how much money the management company can make out of this, but it, uh, the intention being to preserve the ability to maintain good performance in this, as you say, very small, specialist, illiquid, or relatively illiquid area. 
So let's move on. We talked about fundraising a lot in the last quarter of last year. There's been another couple of items uh, or three items to talk about this week on the fundraising front. Uh, let's start with AVI Japan Opportunity Trust, AJOT. And uh, we, I think we've heard from them recently, but what have they said this week? So they're looking to raise up to £35 million uh, through the issue of new or ordinary shares. They published a prospectus actually early March last year, and I think the intention was to raise money at that stage. And clearly, um, market conditions change very rapidly, if we think back uh, about 10 months or so. Uh, but they're looking to raise uh, additional capital. The issue price will be at a, a small premium, about 2% or so, to the NAV at the close of business on the day that the placing closes. And that's expected to be on the 12th of February. So the issuance is not dilutive to the prevailing NAV. It's an interesting story, this one. This investment trust was launched in uh, October 2018, so a few years ago now. And effectively, it's a it's a relatively concentrated portfolio, about 27 holdings or so, that look to uh, really play on the whole kind of Japanese corporate governance uh, theme. So it's kind of small cap Japanese equities, and they're really looking to back the uh, what they would consider to be the overcapitalized small cap names in the space, and then effectively lobby the, the management and the directors of those companies and seek ways to um, make their balance sheets a little bit more leaner. So it's a kind of activist approach. The management team, Joan Baumfreud and Tom Trina, are also responsible for AVI Global Opportunities, which used to be called the British Empire Trust, uh, and they have uh, quite a big allocation to Japanese equities also in that mandate as well. Yeah, so this is interesting. I mean, what caught my eye here is that obviously the shares are trading around par, so that's good for a, uh, a trust of this kind. But the performance hasn't been that great, has it, over the period or not? Am I wrong about that? The data I've got in front of me is just the period over the last 12 months or so, because they haven't quite got a, a three-year track record yet, obviously. Um, certainly over the last year, it's been a quieter time. Their NEV is flat in NEV total return terms. Uh, and certainly within their peer group, uh, names such as the JP Morgan Japan Small Cap Growth and Income Fund and Bailey Giffords in Nippon have done substantially better, probably up over 30% or so, both of those names over the last 12 months. But to be fair to the AVI fund, it is doing something different. It's not uh, playing high growth companies as though the two aforementioned funds are. They're really looking to play um, a different aspect of investing in Japanese equities. So I think the investment case that they make, they would argue, I'm sure, that there's a diversifier to what people may ordinarily look at in their Japanese exposure. Yes, well, good luck to them on that one. Uh, that is an interesting trust, as you say. Let's move on and talk about a trust that we have heard for once or twice before. And this is our old friend Hypnosis Songs Fund, Song, S-A-O-N-G, uh, which is coming back to get some more money. It never seems to stop. What have they said this week? Uh, well, they announced exactly that. They're looking to um, raise new capital. Uh, the issue price will be 121p. And that represents um, a small discount to the closing price just ahead of the announcement. They're looking to raise some more money and actually a 2% premium to their latest NAV. So they actually produced a new NAV at the time of this announcement, which was down a little bit from their previous NAV. I think the previous one was at the end of September. So the NAV had fallen as a result. They paid out some dividends, to be fair, but also foreign exchange movements. That took the NAV down by about 6 or 7p, although they did have a couple of pence of earnings in that period. So again, it's the, the story which we've heard before from hypnosis is that they see a tremendous pipeline. They're very excited about the, the amount of opportunities that they're seeing. I mean, in previous announcements, they've talked about a pipeline of uh, a billion pounds, I think is the figure that they've mentioned. 
Um, as I say, there's no indication of what they're actually trying to look to raise this time round. But the admission of the new shares is expected around about the 10th of February. So it'll be over the next two or three weeks they'll find out uh, exactly where they stand. But they're still deploying new capital. They announced this week as well that they'd acquired the catalogue of a record producer called Bob Rock, who's a Canadian gentleman apparently, uh, and he's worked with such acts as Metallica and Michael Bublé, which seem to me to be uh, either end of the spectrum. So they're still very busy deploying their shareholders' capital. Yes, indeed. And, uh, well, you're certainly a definition of broad-minded, if you like both Michael Bublé and Metallica. I think we could agree on that. This is becoming quite a controversial issue. As we talked about before, the, uh, the pace at which... Uh, Hypnosis is raising money and investing in uh, music royalty streams uh, is quite extraordinary, really. I don't think I can recall a, uh, a trust that has been able to get so much money in so many different uh, placings over such a short period of time. And it's sort of getting headlines in the national newspapers now as well. There was a, a long piece in the Times today about it, being, uh, how should we say, rather sceptical about the whole process. And of course, there is a bit of competition now. I mean, I guess one of the interesting aspects here is, is there's a kind of tension between what the shareholders are maybe thinking about the pace of this uh, development and the issues around how you account for these catalogues and so on, uh, and the entrepreneur who wants to, who recognises this is a great opportunity to, to build a position while lots of other companies like Universal Music are uh, buying up all these catalogues as well. So it's a kind of competitive race, and that's the urgency. Have you heard any more sort of feedback from shareholders about this? So whether they, they like this or whether they're beginning to get a little concerned about the pace at which this is all happening? I noticed that one of the songs that they're going for is Michael Bublé's Call Me Irresponsible. Uh, what do you think about all this? Sorry, that's, that's cracked me up. <laughs> uh, very good. I think, look, you make some very good points there. Um, we've seen a number of investment trust companies come to the market over the years and uh, you know, perform well, attract interest and, and manage to raise additional capital on a relatively frequent basis. And, and one can think of some names actually in the um, infrastructure space, the renewable infrastructure space. But this seems to be a little bit different in, in, in terms of the pace, at least. But I think you make a good point that it does feel as if there is a race to acquire the portfolios, the catalogues that they talk about. Clearly, they're not the, the only game in town. I mean, obviously, we've got two listed investment companies in this space, but there are clearly other buyers around the world who are looking to pick up these, these catalogues. Um, and one suspects that once they are acquired, they won't um, be sold on in a hurry. In other words, it is really much a buy and hold strategy. There has been a tremendous growth. It's now got a market cap of about $1.2 billion. Um, and that's not unimportant because it gives the company uh, a broader range of potential investors, particularly amongst institutional investors. So despite the merits of, of the asset class, however you see them, um, many institutional investors really need something possibly north of a billion pounds before they can get sufficiently interested in it. Uh, and the fact is that they have now achieved this. So they were hoping that they've got their own gravity and that will, will bring in a, a wider set of investors. But we'll see. I think there's always a little bit of suspicion when, you know, particularly in the investment company sector, that, that there seems to be a, a little bit of heat and noise and that may put some people off. Um, so I think this placing will be very interesting, actually, to see how much they actually raise. The fact they haven't put a target number on it, that is also interesting as well. Normally, you'd expect some kind of guidance on that, and that's uh, more often than not driven by the, the opportunity. As I said, they've talked about a potential pipeline of, of a billion pounds. Uh, but in this case, there is no target in terms of the fundraising. So it'd be a really interesting one to watch. 
Yes, yeah, so what's happened in the market? I mean, you mentioned they, they produced their latest figures and uh, the NAV was down a little bit, but what's happened to the share price? I mean, how is it holding up in the in the, in the the wake of all this news and indeed the headlines in the in the, in the media? Yeah, I think we, we talked about uh, last week how the price had just softened a little bit. It's holding relatively steady. It's ended the week at 121.5p, so just uh, half a p off on the day, on the last day of the week. And it certainly seems to have found a range. And to be honest, given that they've announced their issue price of uh, 121p, that you wouldn't expect it to be too dissimilar in the near future. So again, you know, do they run the risk of putting too much paper into the market? Is there going to be a glut of shares? Well, arguably, they would probably like to see the, the share price currently trading on a little bit more of a premium than it is at the moment. But as I say, on intraday fluctuations, you can always see one or two p change on any given day. I mean, one other point I could make about that, because I happen to uh, have an interest in this, this is a, a placing in which uh, ordinary private individual investors can participate if they go on to this uh, new platform called Primary Bid Platform. I had a chat with the Primary Bid people this week because uh, I just interested to know more about them, how it works and so on. And it does mean you can participate on the same terms as the institutions. There are some issues around that uh, whole process. Uh, but it is interesting. And it, one of the comments that they made, there was they were struck by how hypnosis is actually, you know, you could also say they're a bit of a trailblazer here in terms of the way they present themselves. Uh, they have videos you can look at, you know, they've got a, quite a, a sexy product, obviously, compared to some of the investment trust mandates we talk about. They're also targeting a, a younger audience, you know, to come into this uh, particular issue because they've got, you know, they've got recognition outside the professional or the, you know, committed private investor world. So, uh, it's quite interesting. Maybe give a bit of a shake-up in one one or two ways. So let's see. But if it all goes wrong, of course, that would be counterproductive. And talking about doing things in a different way, I mean, the third bit of fundraising we're going to talk about is from an investment company called RTW Venture Fund, or RTW. Uh, that's not a fund which um, cares to tell us exactly what it does in its name, just a nomic or a few letters strung together. So what does RTW Ventures do and uh, what do they say? So this is a quite a specialist investment company. They look to invest in biopharmaceutical and medical technology sectors, uh, primarily in private companies. Uh, it's uh, run by RTW Investments, who are a kind of boutique investor in New York, specialist investor, and led by a chap called Roderick Wong, who I suspect may have something to do with the RTW initials. So they announced this week that they were looking to issue new shares at uh, $2.12, uh, which effectively was an 8% premium to their NAV at the end of December, so the end of 2020. And then after a few days, they announced that they'd issued 3.6 million shares. So in other words, raised about uh, $7.5 million uh, to invest in uh, new opportunities. So it's, as I say, it's a very specialist uh, investment company. Market cap in sterling terms, probably about 220, 230 million or so at the moment. I mean, they have performed very strongly, particularly in the last six months or so, and they're trading out on a, on a double-digit premium. So uh, we estimate about a 13% premium or so at the moment. But uh, it's still relatively early days. This vehicle only came to the market at the end of 2019, October 2019. It was launched. Right. So, I mean, is that uh, issuing shares at an 8% premium? We don't see that very often, do we? It's probably a little unusual, but then to be fair, they were trading on a, a premium somewhere north of that. So as I mentioned at the moment, they're on a 13% premium. So th the difficulty that you have with this type of vehicle is because it's private companies. 
uh, and obviously they are valued on a particular basis. There's always that suspicion that they are conservatively valued. Then to have an additional premium on them seems a little more logical. Let's move on to some results then. We've heard from uh, Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust. This has been an extraordinary success uh, since that launched not so long ago. They produced some results. What's the what's the story there, Simon? That's right. So they produced their interim results for the six months to the end of November last year. Uh, and as you say, it has performed very, very well. So in that period alone, the NAV total return was about 51%, uh, and that compared with their benchmark return of 11%, so significant outperformance. In share price terms, it was even better, up 54%. Uh, but just to give you some numbers, this investment trust was actually launched back in March 2018. So we're almost coming up uh, three years or so now. And at the time, they raised £173 million. Uh, which was a little bit below their target of uh, 250 million. Uh, but even so, the performance has been tremendous. And since that launch date, uh, so as I said, just under three years ago, their NAV is up 233%. In share price terms, it's up 248%. And that compares with a rise of 58% for the index. So it really has been a very strong performer. In the period that they've just reported on, the manager, I think, highlighted in his report uh, the contributions of Moderna and Illumina in the healthcare biotech sector. And obviously both those companies uh, have been involved in the fight against COVID-19. Uh, he also highlighted Tesla, uh, which is the largest holding in the portfolio at the moment, and SpaceX, uh, which is always guaranteed to get a few headlines as well. And in fact, uh, Gary Robinson, who's the manager of this particular investment trust was, was kind enough to talk at our uh, investment conference earlier today and uh, always f- some fascinating insights into the, the the companies that they have in the portfolio and again well worth a read of his particular investment manager report but it just in regards of uh, Tesla he made the point I think it's a very good one that there's always a lot of talk about Tesla and the valuation but he made the point that the scale of what they've achieved to date is actually relatively modest compared with their ambition Uh, in terms of the development of electric vehicles around the world. So um, a very interesting portfolio and one that's performed very strongly in this period. And indeed, and provide some proof that the uh, UK management companies can actually do quite well in the US market if they've got the right strategy at the right time. Often been said in the past that they find it very difficult to do well in that that market, but here's a glorious exception to that. Uh, Okay, so returning to slightly more mundane matters, we had the annual results from... uh, another quite large and well-known investment trust, the Bankers Investment Trust. And the story there, perhaps not quite so exciting. Not so exciting, but again, another outperformance, a little bit more modest, but they had their annual results out to the end of October last year. NAV total return was up 5.3%, and that compared with 4.3% for the FTSE World Index. Uh, the share price uh, total return numbers were, were stronger, up 8.1%. And that's a reflection of the fact it got re-rated. So in other words, it went to a slight premium actually in the period. It's interesting to to note how it's varying on the dividend front because that's actually a key part of bankers' uh, investment story. They managed to grow the dividend again. It was up just above 3% in the year. And that represented the 54th year of growth. And that, as I say, is a key part of the attraction of this particular investment company. 
Um, the earnings per share are actually down 22% uh, in the period, so the dividend was uncovered, but they used their revenue reserves uh, in order to uh, keep that dividend growth record going. And just on that front, actually, the manager was made it clear that he thinks it will take uh, kind of more than a year for the, the earnings to recover. And so actually the dividend growth for the current financial year, they were, they are forecasting just up uh, half a percent, so more modest growth. But it's, it's a slightly old-fashioned investment trust, this one, as much as they they have regional portfolios. So rather than have uh, one manager or two managers selecting a, a portfolio, there's an allocation. It's allocated out to a number of uh, expert regional managers. And this, in this particular period, all of the regional managers or regional portfolios outperformed. The only exception was Pacific, X, China and Japan, which had a bit more of a value style. So uh, unsurprisingly, that struggled. But again, Alex Crook is, uh, has overall responsibility for this one. He's a very experienced investor. Uh, and again, there's somebody who wanted an insight into how a, a kind of global equity investment manager regarded the world and how they navigated their way through uh, quite testing waters over the last 12, 18 months or so. Then, then Alex's report is, is well worth a read. Some quite good insight into what they did and how they responded, to, particularly to that market sell off in March last year. And uh, in terms of the context, in terms of the sector, how is uh, bankers trading uh, compared to others in its, uh, in its sector? Bankers um, trades well in as much as it's on a, a premium rating. It's on a, about a 1% premium or so at the moment. And that's been what it, where it's averaged over the, the last 12 months. So um, although it clearly doesn't have the spectacular returns of a, say, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, um, this is one of those investment trusts that has a kind of more blended, more diversified portfolio. Uh, it's not a growth-tilted portfolio or, or even a value. It's a kind of all-weather uh, type vehicle. And I think that the dividend aspect is quite an important part. So the yield at the moment uh, is just under 2%, but it's the fact that they have been able to grow it for 54 years, which is clearly quite an impressive achievement. And one suspects that the, the board and indeed the investment manager will be very keen to keep that record going. Indeed, they will. Okay, so move on to another company. This is a rougher investment company. Uh, this is more of a defensive investment company and uh, they put out some information uh, this week what have they had to say yep they had a review for the six months to the end of december and it was the second half of last year uh, and a good period for rougher actually their nav total return was up about six six and a half percent in share price terms it was even stronger at 9.1 percent uh, and then basically the shares moved from a, a discount to a one percent premium so again, some good insight into their uh, report to investors in terms of how they built their portfolio. And as you rightly say, they're looking to generate consistent absolute returns, a real all-weather portfolio. So uh, I think at the end of December, they had about 40 41% exposed to equities. Of that, just under half were actually UK equities, 18% or so, which is quite interesting. A number of years ago, Ruffer had a big weighting to Japan, I seem to remember. and They saw the Japanese market as a value trade. Uh, quite possibly they see the UK market now as offering that attractive value. And then on the other side of the portfolio, it's a real mixture between cash, gold, non-UK index linked, um, and that's the largest part of that. But also they've they've kind of captured a little bit of media interest by having an exposure to Bitcoin, which they describe as an idiosyncratic asset class, something a little bit different. And actually, I think at the end of the period, they had their exposure was about three percent or so after having performed quite well i think um the direct bitcoin exposure was up about 90 percent or so it's probably fared a little bit less well since so um again quite an interesting insight into building an all-weather portfolio 
Yes, their commentary is also, we've, uh, it's well worth reading about how they think about the world. You may not agree with it, but how they think about it. And indeed, this very idea of trying to construct a portfolio where you can diversify against most of the risks you perceive and how to do that without actually resulting in no return at all. So having lost a bit of ground against some of their peer group competitors, they've done a little bit better recently, which is good for them. Let's move on uh, to the property sector now. And we've got three or four results here, uh, very different kind of results. Let's start off with Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income. This is one you know well, I think, at least uh, recently. What's the story there? So they had a Q4 update, so basically the three-month period to the end of December. Uh, and basically, it's a good story. I mean, clearly, logistics um, is not a bad place to be, particularly in the property world at the moment. The valuation uh, was up 6% on a like-for-like -like basis from the end of September, so in that three-month period. So that was good. In terms of the rent collection, 100% um, of rent due for that final quarter had been collected and for the whole of 2020, I think that figure was 97% of rent due. So again, in comparison with the wider property market, that's a pretty good result. So um, a strong period for this particular investment company, this property play. But then again, it's reflected in the fact that it's trading on a 9-10% premium rating at the moment. And obviously that's in sharp contrast with a number of particularly the UK commercial funds who find themselves trading out on 30 plus percent discounts. Indeed, that's a big disparity, and um, we can perhaps talk about one where we may have to lower our tone for this one a little bit in uh, not doing at all well, which is Drum Income Plus REIT, which has also put out some full year results, and uh, they're not so pretty, I think it's fair to say. No, they had a tough year. This is their annual results to the end of September. Uh, the NAV per share was actually down 14% uh, in that period. They actually played two dividends, I believe, but then the, the next two, they pay on a quarterly basis, uh, were postponed in order to preserve cash. The board are actually uh, proposing to recommence the quarterly dividends uh, from February, so from next month, but a reduced level. So that would be a reduced annual level of 3p versus 6p per share before the pandemic. Um, so clearly a, a, a tough period. They talked about rent collection, which is something that we're keeping a very close eye on at the moment. Um, it's holding up reasonably well, actually. I mean, in the first quarter of last year, it was 91%. It dropped to 81% in the second quarter and was 90% for the third quarter. But it, it's fair to say that this is one of the smaller property funds at the moment. I mean, in market cap terms, it's only 13 million. So it's probably off the radar for most people, although the portfolio was actually valued at the end of September last year at 51 million. So it's larger, obviously, at a portfolio level. Yeah, it has an unfortunate distinction, I think, of being the worst performer over the last year in the UK commercial property sector. So let's move on to uh, Impact Healthcare REIT. And we've got Target Healthcare REIT, two healthcare REITs, and uh, perhaps we could contrast and compare the story with these two. Yeah, no, I think it's worth doing that. I mean, both produced updates for that final quarter of last year, and the story is positive, just to run you through it, in terms of Impact Healthcare they talked about occupancy levels being stable, uh, though below the usual levels. They made the point that new admissions are not expected to rise substantially until current lockdown restrictions on visitors are eased. And obviously the care home vaccination programme has been completed. Just on that, uh, at the 15th of January, they, they estimated that residents at 60% of the homes in their portfolio had received the first vaccine dose. Uh, with the remainder expected to receive their vaccine before the end of January. So that clearly is good news. 
in terms of rent collection terms, uh, unsurprisingly, that the story is, is pretty good, actually. 100% of contracted rent for 2020 is being received. And so far, they're on course, although very early days, obviously, for 2021. So uh, a positive story there. And that particular uh, investment company is trading on a, on a bit of a premium at the moment. Target Healthcare, uh, which is obviously very similar in terms of what it does, they uh, announced in their update that the vaccination program, which is obviously a key concern, it's well advanced, uh, which again is good. They were up to 86% of their care homes. And again, the remainder of the portfolio is expected to see that all be finished off by the end of January. They made the observation that currently confirmed COVID-19 cases were there in 2% or so of the total portfolio beds across 14 care homes. Um, and that compares with 3% or so back in April last year. So i.e. a lower level. Uh, and let's hope that level comes down even more in the in the weeks ahead. So those two make up a sector, a sort of mini sector themselves, a subsector themselves, the UK healthcare property sector. And uh, what kind of they're offering yields? What sort of yields? I'm guessing somewhere sort of around 5% or so. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. They're um, almost in tandem, according to the, the numbers I have in front of me, just about 5.8%, uh, very, very similar. And as I say, both uh, trade uh, on premiums, probably target healthcare's premiums just slightly higher at the moment, probably about 8% premium or so. But uh, yes, it's important to note with, with both these REITs that they're not healthcare home operators. They effectively just own the property, which is clearly not only important, but they don't have the, the operational risk. Well, they're probably very happy about that, I would think, yes. So that's the end of the significant results we've had this week. Uh, we might just finish off by talking a little bit. As I said, it's been a busy week for you too, Sam. I know you've produced your annual review. It's a big, chunky document you produce at the end of uh, each year, looking back on the year just gone. Uh, and you've also had a conference today, and so you've been a busy fellow, it has to be said. But just taking a rest, let's look at your annual review. First of all, a sort of general comment about the sector performance. We've covered that before in these conversations, but you've had time to reflect on it. It's a pretty good year for investor trust, as we have uh, as we keep on saying. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and I think it was a moment in March when I think everybody stared into the abyss, quite possibly, and you thought, oh my goodness, this, this could all go south quite quickly. And, you know, as we discussed before, discounts did widen up dramatically in a very short period of time. But equally, they bounced back uh, almost equally as quickly. And it's been a good story. I think, you know, history would suggest that the there is a significant advantage in terms of the close-ended fund structure that managers are not for sellers uh, at times of market distress. They can look through those bumps in the road and take the longer term view. And I think that's certainly to their advantage. Uh, and I think in addition to that, the fact that investment trusts provide greater dividend certainty, which is not to say that uh, we don't see dividend cuts. Clearly, we have done uh, across the wider investment company space. But um, there is kind of more optionality within the structure, um, particularly, obviously, within the equity income space, where revenue reserves mean that investment trust companies can effectively buy time by using their revenue reserves to keep their, their dividend levels up. So there are a number of advantages for investment trust companies, and obviously, they really came through last year. And I guess the question then is, I mean, obviously times have been good for the investment trust sector for quite a long time now. It's outperformed the market most years in the last few years, at least, and um, it's in good health. But I guess the big issues still are in terms of governance and in terms of changing shareholder registers, the arrival. There are more uh, individual investors now owning investment trusts, and uh, there are issues about how trusts communicate with their shareholders. Are they doing it as well as they could do? I mean, it's quite striking. One I looked at recently was uh, Edition, 
the one we talked about not so long ago, and the kind of material they present, you know, the way they present it, is leap years ahead of how some other investment trusts, perhaps rather stater examples, uh, communicate with their shareholders. So do you think that there's uh, more to be done on that kind of front? Or do you think that investment trusts have to keep changing, modernising, keeping up with the times if they're going to stay relevant, as they have become, obviously, in the last few years? Yes, is the very simple answer. I think it's absolutely crucial. We talked before on these podcasts about the rise of the importance of direct retail investors. So people who are prepared to do their homework, uh, follow the news websites, maybe listen to podcasts even, uh, and really do their homework on investment trust companies and access them via the, the, the platforms such as Interactive Investor, AJ Bell, Hargreaves Lansdowne, uh, to name but a few. And in order to communicate with those investors, I think it's essential that investment trust companies provide relevant and timely information. And as you say, there are a number that are doing it. And as a user of uh, investment trust websites myself, I can tell you that there is a huge variation still in terms of the level of communication and disclosure that they provide. There is, uh, in general, a move to providing greater and more in-depth information, but clearly some have some ground to make up. Uh, And if they want to, as you say, retain their relevance uh, and attract new investors, uh, then then it's something that they absolutely must do. Well, I think that behoves all of us to keep on our toes and uh, put that pressure on to make sure that that does happen, because it is important. If you you make a big fuss about how good your governance is, you've really got to uh, be able to demonstrate that as well and show a commitment, not just to your largest shareholders, but to uh, all the shareholders, which is, after all, your legal obligation. On that note, Simon, it's been a long week for you, I know, so we'll let you go now. We look forward to uh, speaking again next week and finding out what else the future may hold for investment trusts and, of course, our loyal uh, listeners. So thanks again, Simon. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.